Theme implies vision. Uh, really what we're talking about when we say a theme for chapel or a theme for the semester is we want to have vision. Scripture tells us, my people, God is speaking, my people perish for lack of vision. And it's easy for us to languish on the vine if we don't have vision, if we don't know where we're going, if we don't have direction. And so that's what we're trying to instill in your life, in our lives, is some vision of where are we going this semester. Each of you is here for perhaps varying reasons. Um, some of you might be here, you, you would say, to study the Bible or to learn how to live your own faith. You've been living the faith of mom and dad for a long time, and you're now finally out on your own, and you're able to live your own faith. You want to make it your own. That's, that's wonderful. Some of you might be here because you wish to escape homeschool prison, uh, and uh, that's okay, too. Uh, we are glad to have you. Uh, some of you may be here to find a spouse. Thank you, Matthew. Uh, <laughs> that happens. Um, somewhere on your list of reasons, I suspect, is that you want to grow in your devotion to Christ. You want to grow in your Christ-likeness. You want to grow in your level of commitment to the Lord. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. We understand this to be the case, that you want to grow. In fact, you pay us to do to you what you would otherwise not do on your own. And you hope that one year or four years is long enough for you to learn the habits to ultimately do it yourself. Did you catch that? You're paying us to do to you what you otherwise would not do to yourself. And you hope that one year or four years is enough to make it a habit in your life so that you'll be able to carry on through the rest of your life. This semester's theme for chapels is the spiritual disciplines. Uh, what would you consider a spiritual discipline? Let's just list a few. There's not a, a list that I have in mind, but, but what are some of them, at least? Yeah, Brandon. Prayer? You bet. What else? Reading scripture, Josh. Discipleship, you bet. What else? Fellowship. Fellowship, sure. Fasting might be one, you bet. Others? Memorizing scripture, you bet. Yeah, uh, an important part of the discipline of our lives. Meditating on scripture, perhaps, where scripture memory comes in really handy. Uh, yeah, spiritual disciplines, things that we do to help cause our growth in Christ-likeness, to help cause our devotion to our Lord Jesus. I preached a sermon. Uh, we occasionally, as staff, get called uh, to fill in for pastors, and I filled in for a pastor after, uh, uh, during one Christmas break. And, and after the service, I had a young gentleman, not that young, I guess. He was probably about my age. I'm getting old. Uh, a gentleman come up to me after the sermon, and, and he, he said, it sounded like you wanted us to do something in your sermon. And I thought for a moment, and I, I said, well, yeah, actually, there's a few things I wanted you to do. And he said, well, 
I, I don't think there's anything that we can do to cause our spiritual growth. I think all we should do is really just reflect on the cross and it will happen. And I thought to myself and, and for a moment, and then I said, well, that causes a question in my mind then. Uh, why then would Paul give us so many imperatives in Scripture? You guys know what imperatives are. They're commands in Scripture. And he said, well, I have an answer for that, but it'll take me about an hour to explain it. And I said, well, I don't have an hour, sorry. But uh, why don't you come over and see me in my office sometime? I'd love to hear your answer. I'm still waiting. But, uh, <laughs> but it's interesting that Paul gives us all these commands in Scripture, all these imperatives. What are we to do with them? Are we to do anything? And I would argue, yeah, there are things that we can and should do. The spiritual disciplines are some of those things that we can and should do. We sometimes here at the school require homework or quiet times or discipleship. Notice that the basic word in discipleship is discipline. We want to be able to discipline your lives, discipline our own lives in such a way that it will bring about godliness. Now, is it a a simple relationship, a simple uh, reciprocal relationship. If we do this, we'll suddenly be this much godly. No, not necessarily. But Paul has left us some instructions uh, in various places that should help us to grow. This semester's theme for chapels is spiritual discipline, and I want to address today the need for discipline generally. I'm going to leave it to others later in the semester to address some of the specific spiritual disciplines. If I covered them all in uh, one chapel message, chances are you would forget them by probably 1157. Uh, so we'll leave some of the disciplines specifically for later times in the semester. But I want to address generally the need for discipline in our lives. And I want to start with one simple teaching. Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 4 to discipline himself for the purpose of godliness. To dis discipline himself for the purpose of godliness. There is some context here that probably would be helpful for us to examine or at least observe. We don't have time really to examine, but at least to observe that will help us in terms of understanding what he means when he says to Timothy, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. I'm going to read verses 6 through 8 of 1 Timothy 4, if you have your Bibles with you, because this sets the tone for what Paul is saying to Timothy, ultimately what he's saying to us. 1 Timothy 4, 6, he's telling Timothy, and he says, In pointing out these things to the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following. But have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Paul starts out in this paragraph by saying, maintain good input. 
sound doctrine matters. He has just spent a little bit of time differentiating between good and sound doctrine. Back in the first portion of 1 Timothy chapter 4, he talks about those who will fall away, those who will go astray, those who will listen to unsound, bad, horrible doctrine. And he gives a couple of examples, those who uh, abstain from marriage and who forbid certain kinds of foods. Well, maybe those aren't the bad doctrine of today for us. Maybe they are. But rather, we can hopefully differentiate between good and bad doctrine. For Timothy, it was a little more difficult. For Timothy, it meant that he had to remember what Paul had taught him. That's why in 2 Timothy, Paul comes along, and, and who knows 2 Timothy 2 too? You good disciplers out there. Uh, yeah, Phil. Exactly. What you have heard from me, the things you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Timothy had listened to Paul. Paul was his source of sound doctrine. What's our source of sound doctrine? It's pretty clear, isn't it? You're here at a Bible college. The Bible is our source of sound doctrine. Scripture is our authoritative source. That's where we get our sound doctrine from. There is a difference between good and bad doctrine, and Paul wants Timothy to understand it and to implement it. The guys in, in the beginning of 1 Timothy chapter 4 who were teaching bad doctrine had their consciences seared by sin. Their consciences seared. In other words, they were no longer sensitive to what true doctrine was because of the sin in their life. And what does it take to get sin out of our lives, to rid ourselves of sin, to recreate a new habit in our lives and leave the habit of sin behind? Well, what it takes is discipline. Maybe discipleship. Maybe more input, like more scripture, through reading, memory. Maybe prayer. I've uh, heard from people over the years on occasion who say, yeah, I, I know I need to pray, pray more, but prayer really doesn't do a whole lot for me. Uh, and uh, <laughs> usually when I hear that, I say, thus says someone who doesn't pray. Uh, and uh, uh, those words are usually spoken by someone who doesn't believe in the power of prayer because they don't do it. They don't do it. We're here to do some things, and that's okay. That's a good thing. Do some things that you might not otherwise do if all you did was sit in your room and watch TV or play video games. We're going to have courses. We're going to have time together where we will challenge one another. Iron sharpens iron, and when iron sharpens iron, what's it look like? Sparks fly. That's a good thing, getting sharper. Now, we need to fly the appropriate kinds of sparks. We want to get rid of the dross that uh, is perhaps uh, layered upon us. But we want to sharpen each other. And that may mean doing some things. Verse 7, Paul engages Timothy in the worldly fables. He says, but have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. 
I'm convinced that Paul here is talking about teachings of the world that may be attractive, may be very practical or useful. They may generate great interest. They may be seeker-sensitive, whatever. Um, these worldly fables, Paul says, cast them aside. Have nothing to do with them. Don't pay any attention to them. These are fit only for old women. And lest you think otherwise, his reference to old women here is not necessarily a gender reference. It's not just women that pay attention to worldly fables. Nor is it only old women who pay attention to worldly fables. Indeed, likely this is a cultural reference because if you were old and female, what would you have been doing in that culture in that day? What would your lifestyle have been like? Probably fairly sedentary. You would have not gotten out a lot. You would have not engaged uh, a lot in serving or a lot in fellowship or interaction. You would have sat around and told wives' tales or stories or engaged in useless speculation. That's not something that is endemic to women or even old women. That's true of any one of us if we let ourselves go. Paul's point is clear here. Stand fast on good doctrine. One of the best questions, and if you don't learn anything else this year in our classes or in chapel, this might be the best question you could come out of this semester, thinking and saying, what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say about this? Not necessarily what do I think or what is very useful or what, what, we, what would we like to do, but what does the Bible say? Stand fast on good doctrine. He moves on to say, discipline yourself for godliness. Timothy, don't have anything to do with the worldly fables, the worldly teachings, but discipline yourself for godliness. Set yourself apart. Do the hard work, the hard labor that is going to be required in order to be a more godly follower of Christ. We've talked about some of those things already. Praying, reading scripture, memorizing scripture, meditating on scripture. Maybe a good indicator of, of how our godliness is going, a good litmus test, a good thermometer to put in our minds and think, okay, how am I doing in terms of disciplining myself for godliness, is to ask yourself the question, what, what do I spend time meditating on? What is my life saturated with? If I, if I spend all my time meditating on video games, <laughs> then what is my life looking like? What is the level of my godliness? If I followed you around for one week, I love to tell high schoolers this. If I followed you around for one week and observed your life, watched what you did, where you spent your time, where you gave your energy, who would I say your God is? You ever reflected on that? Wondered about, okay, what does my life really reflect? What does, and here, when I talk about meditation, what does my mental life, my intellectual life, my mental discipline, what does that look like? 
how do I spend my mental energy? Or rather, perhaps, how do I invest my mental energy? I'm afraid the greatest waste of brain cells is not alcohol, but leisurely thinking. Leisurely thinking. The greatest waste of brain cells is apathetic meditation. Verse 8, Paul continues, and he says, For bodily discipline is only of little value or little profit. Some of your versions may read, is of some profit. Uh, it, uh, uh, Paul wants to point out here, and, and make no mistake, um, I would be a hypocrite if I stood before you and said, it is of no profit. Uh, Paul doesn't say that bodily discipline is of no profit. He says it is of small profit. Compared to godliness, which is, of course, of tremendous profit in this life and the next, he's going to say. But bodily discipline is of some profit. Smaller, yes. Little, okay. But still some profit. Why? Because Paul understands something about the relationship between our bodies and our minds. That, that we aren't just thinking creatures. Anybody in here a Star Trek fan? A few Trekkies? The old Star Trek? Uh, yeah, the, I love the old Star Trek. There was one uh, occasion where they landed on this planet. And on this planet, Spock says that uh, the culture there had advanced and evolved 10,000 years beyond the culture of Earth. And it was interesting to observe, okay, well, if, if this is the far advance, the exponential advance of what Earth is supposed to be like, what exactly are these creatures going to be? And guess what they were? Anybody remember? Have you seen the episode? They were brains under glass. They no longer had physical bodies. They were just brains under glass. You are not just brains under glass. You walk around and are physical creatures, feeling creatures. You are bodily creatures. And Paul understands this. He's not a Gnostic. He doesn't believe that we are only brains under glass. We are people who have bodies. And these bodies influence how we think. Tasha talked about that. Jenny talked about that. Alan talked about that. When they talked about how you sleep, eat, and exercise, all affect how you think. It all goes together. Paul understood that. He was a tent maker. Jesus understood that. He was a carpenter. They did physical things because there is a relationship between what we do physically and how well we can use these little cells that are rolling around in our heads. Bodily discipline is of some profit. Keep that in mind. If you want to discipline your life, bodily discipline is a great place to start. Why? Because it's relatively easy. All I have to do is get off the couch, get busy, start moving a little bit. Just go for a walk. It doesn't take a lot. And it's interesting how contagious things like that become. How contagious. Because I figure if I can discipline my body, then I can discipline my thoughts. 
can discipline my eyes. I can discipline my hands. It's contagious. It kind of catches on. It snowballs a little bit in your life. Godliness, of course, is greater, though. Paul makes no bones about that. He says, uh, but godliness is profitable for all things since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Godliness is the greatest we can attain because, uh, ultimately, it's going to have value beyond just the here and now. Bodily discipline is only going to last for so long. Our body is eventually going to wear out. Um, I really want to test how long that lasts, but uh, uh, we'll see, Nick. Yeah. <laughs> we'll see if we can still bench over 200 pounds when we're like 90 years old. Uh, yeah. <laughs> But godliness lasts into eternity. It makes eternal difference. Christ's likeness lasts beyond this life. That's what we're going for. That's what we're going for. This is why um, Danny had asked me a couple weeks ago if I would talk about this. And I said, you know, it would be good for us to talk about our theory of time, uh, because uh, all of us have the same amount of time. We all have 24 hours in a day, seven days in a week. We all use the same amount of time. Uh, but have you ever thought, not so much about how you use your time, but rather why God gives us time? God's the one who invented time. Time is, is essential for a created world because creation must have time to exist. God gave us time. And I fear we often think of time as though it's a burden. A burden. It's a weight that we bear. Lord, why do I still have this sin in my life? Lord, why can't I change more quickly? Lord, why don't you just snap your fingers and make it happen instantaneously? Glorify me now, Lord. Why does all this take so long? We think of time as a burden. Biblically speaking, however, time is a gift. It's a gift that God gives us. He gives us time, practically speaking, because very likely, if he were to glorify us immediately, it would kill us. We couldn't handle it. We couldn't take immediate glorification because it would probably overwhelm us. So practically speaking, he gives us time because we need it. But theologically speaking, he gives us time because glory is public. Those of you who've been in my classes, you understand this. Glory is public. Now, what do I mean by that? God's change in our lives must happen in time, must happen over time. He, by means of our growth, transforms us, conforms us, Romans 8 says, more and more into the image of Christ. By being conformed or transformed more into the image of Christ, we glorify God. Indeed, that is the answer to the question. If you want to know how to glorify God, 
The answer to that question is Christ-likeness. Matthew 5.16 says what? Anybody? Exactly. They may see your good works, things done in time, and give glory, give honor to your Father who's in heaven. When people see our Christ-likeness displayed publicly, that's what God is doing, not to make us proud or to make us a spectacle, but to bring honor to himself. That's glory. That's glory. Glory is not something ethereal that's out there like a cloud or like the force in Star Wars. Glory is something very time-laden. God has entrusted to us, and it's really not much of a risk. God has entrusted to us his glory. I say it's not much of a risk because of Ephesians 2.9. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, unto good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God has prepared good works for us to walk in and he is the one that's going to accomplish those things in our lives. Simple question. Are you walking? Are you walking yet? Are you doing the things that will ultimately bring him glory? Glory is public. God wants his glory to be put on display for all creation to see. This requires time and only happens as we engage at the level of discipline. Discipline yourself for the sake of godliness. Proverbs 22:29, a rather obscure passage that demonstrates this, but it's an interesting passage that... Uh, 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 came out as I was uh, reading through 1 Timothy 4 and, and looking at other passages on this subject. Proverbs twenty two twenty nine says, Show me a man skilled in his work. He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. Kind of an odd passage, and yet the principle holds true. A man skilled in his work, someone who has put forth the labor to become disciplined in his work, to become skilled in his craft. God places him before kings. Discipline, in other words, matters to God. Discipline matters to God. How you doing? Guys, I'm going to give you an invitation here today. This is for the guys, not for ladies, sorry. Uh, I'm sure you will get uh, plenty of invitations in days to come. But this one's for the guys. Uh, over the years, I've been doing this, how long have I been here now, Danny? Over 20 years. Uh, over the years, it seems invariably I encounter a problem with guys that we talk about, that we engage uh, when we discipline ourselves for the sake of godliness. In other words, when we get together for discipleship. And that issue is the issue of purity. We encounter it frequently. Purity of thought, purity of action. And I want to challenge you guys on it, but it's not enough for me to just say, don't do it, or do this, or something like that. So we're going to engage this semester and 
I want to invest with you in disciplining yourself for godliness. So tomorrow morning, 7 o'clock, I'll be in my office, and whoever wants to can come in, and we're going to pray for your purity. We're going to pray, and, and I'm not going to have a camera. I'm not going to take names. I don't care who all is there. In fact, if nobody shows up, that's okay. I'll still pray for you guys. But we're going to pray for purity. Purity in your hearts, purity in your minds, purity of life. You're welcome to join me. I would love to see you there. We probably won't be able to stay in my office unless it's just a couple of you. But, uh, yeah. Let's get started. Let's hit the ground running. There's the invitation. Let's pray. Father, we know you want discipline in our lives. You want Christ-likeness to be true of us. It begins sometimes at very basic levels, but it always takes our energy. It always takes our effort. You give us your spirit that we might walk in truth and walk in righteousness. But Lord, we still need to walk. We pray for more strength. We pray for courage. We pray for dedication so that discipline might become a habit in our life. Because, Lord, we love you. We want to be like your son. We want to be part of your plan for the ages, which is to bring glory to your name through the work of your spirit in our lives. Lord, use us to that end. We pray this semester, this year, change us that we might be vessels of righteousness. We pray through Jesus. Amen.